So we are back for another class of Book of Acts, and we have stopped uh, at the end of Acts 9. Uh, and I'm try I believe we got to, we didn't read the section on the healing of Aeneas, correct? We had talked, the last I was talking about some ecclesiological stuff and church history and Peter and Paul and all of that, uh, I believe is where we ended. Um, and now we are to the healing of Aeneas and uh, Tabitha, a.k.a. Dorcas. Uh, and then we can go and meet Cornelius in the next chapter. So um, let's actually start with prayer, and then we'll, we will go at the text. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, O Christ our God, bless our study and our uh, attention as we focus upon the work of you and your Holy Spirit through uh, your Apostle Peter and through the rest of your early followers. May we follow uh, the direction and prompting of the Holy Spirit as they did so that we may uh, accomplish and see your kingdom at work in us and in the world by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is to you we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Amen. That, I just realized that one God bit, I haven't done that in a long time because in the uh, different Orthodox, uh, I say expressions or like local practices will get, pick up little differences. And one of the things that the Antiochian, uh, the church out of Antioch, when they uh, invoke Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they'll always say one God at the end, which being in Syria and Lebanon, I'm not surprised that they underline when they say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Um, let the hearer or viewer discern what I am saying. Uh, so I heard that a lot years ago, and I haven't heard it recently. And for whatever reason, uh, it just uh, popped up there. So um, that's where that comes from. Uh, I like all of the little practices of the Orthodox Church that you can tell underline the specific world and context that they come out of. Um, I remember hearing chanting in Kentucky and by chanting, I mean Byzantine chant and it was definitely Kentucky Byzantine chant, but was kind of annoying the first time I heard around, I heard it. And after a while it just kind of became endearing because what else would Kentucky Byzantine chant look sound like, but, Kentucky Byzantine chant. So, yeah, there's that. So, uh, who would like to read? Uh, well, there's only there's only two of you tonight, even though I am present through a, a, another laptop here, so it makes it look like we're bigger than we are. Um, who would like to start? Let's go ahead and just finish this chapter. Uh, Erica, you're not muted. Reed is muted, so I'm just going to pick on you. That's fine. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints that lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all of the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. 
In those days, she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him entreating him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he had come, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So what do all this, this healing account is fascinating partly because uh it kind of creates a split in the text and i know i kind of sound like uh i'm beating a a dead horse by reminding us that these divisions in the text are uh false divisions as in subtitles headings and you know doing the verses it's a much later edition um but there's a kind of veering here away from the story of uh, our Saul, who's not yet Paul, uh, even though he's been baptized and brought into the church. And now we're back to Peter. Um, what do you, what sticks out to you about this healing of Aeneas? Does anything stick out? Well, partly it's obscurity. It seems connected to nothing else. And so, which makes me go, there's something going on here <laughs> that I'm not discerning. I do wonder whether there's a certain resemblance to Christ healing the, the man there at Beth, uh, Bethsaida who had uh, been paralyzed for so many years and I think it's interesting on both occasions, they tell them what to do with their beds. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, I think definitely on that level, you're onto something. Uh, And as we've seen throughout Acts, the continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the kingdom now being um, furthered through the the disciples and apostles. um, I do note that I'll see if I can actually show this, that this shows expansion like we've been seeing. This is not, you know what? This is probably, I'm going to figure out how this is going to work. How can I do this? Oh, I've got people waiting. I'm going to try. Can you see Lida and Joppa on there? Joppa's by the sea. Oh, yeah. Down near the bottom. Yeah. Lida and Joppa. Okay, got it. Hi, Jim. Hi there. Good evening. Sorry, were you guys waiting for a while? Uh, yeah, but it was no problem. I figured you'd be letting me in when we were all up and going. Yeah, we're up and going, and I 
I have a weird arrangement right now. So sorry. I was, right, we just finished uh, Acts 9, reading about the healing of Aeneas, and then uh, um, Tabitha, a.k.a. Dorcas. And mm -hmm. partly what I was trying to show in a very non-professional manner here, <laughs> where Joppa and Lydda are, uh, okay. since the healing of Aeneas happens in Lydda, it basically it's Jerusalem heading to uh, the Mediterranean Sea there. Uh, and so... What we have is what we've been talking about, this kind of moving uh, away from Jerusalem. This is another encounter where the story of Lydda happens and then Joppa is even further away from um, Jerusalem. Mm. We're trying to also just discern what exactly, why is this, these few verses dedicated to this healing there's many healings that are not in the text. So why is this healing uh, here? I mean, it's the transition away from Saul to Peter, but Reed, were you about to say something? Well, I'm just, I'm wondering whether verse 35 is really the explanation. Um, All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. And so it's like, we've learned how the Samaritans first heard the word. We've learned how uh, Ethiopia first mm. heard and it's like, oh, and now here's a new area, Lydda and Sharon, and this was what persuaded them, and they evidently turned in mass to the Lord. Is there anything special about the name Aeneas? Is that the name? This makes me, this, this is where my class, I am not a classics major. Aeneas is the name of the Aeneid, right? Yes, he was the, um, not Rome, but... Um, From Troy, he was brought... Well, I was thinking more Carthage, and he was the queen. I remember he was the son of Anchises, if I remember from my seventh grade Latin class. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm dredging back 40 years. Are you talking about, like, uh, Dido or Adida? Yes, no. wasn't that... I thought Aeneas was the um, character in the Aeneid. Well, who is the main character in Virgil's Aeneid? That would be Aeneas. Um, so was that the founding of... That's the, it's about the founding of Rome. He, he was from Troy and then he comes well, not, over. Not Rome because that was Romulus and Remus. Yeah, but they, they tie in... Wikipedia to the rescue. <laughs> for, for a quick... For a quick... Um, Trojan hero, son of Anchises and the goddess Aphrodite. His father was a first cousin of Priam of Troy, making Aeneas a second cousin to Priam's children. He's mentioned in Homer's Iliad. Aeneas yes. receives full treatment of Roman mythology most extensively in the Aeneid, where he is cast. He's an ancestor of Romulus and Remus. Right. So even though Romulus and Remus were the founders of Rome, Aeneas was the ancestor of. It's the way the Romans were able to say, see, we're Greek too. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and in there fact, we're in the foundational document of Greek, <laughs> Greek uh, uh, society. We're, we're in the Iliad. So uh, I don't know when I've, uh, I've never read that name and thought of that before, but when I read this name, it's hard for me not to think uh, of that character. Um, yeah whatever that's worth. I, I don't know if that had, 
I know that there have been many dissertations about Acts and Luke using Greco-Roman biography. And I know there's even been some work talking about the influence of um, Homer on the book of Acts of this kind of journeying away hmm. and certain, I think if I'm remembering correctly, even later when there's the shipwreck that there's interesting and on an island, that there's some interesting parallels and stuff, but that was in another life. I don't remember all the details, but well, I don't it's think it's understandable. I mean, media is media and memes are memes and what, how people communicate, they use the, the, what's what's available and the tropes that people would know it and those are definitely and those are the tropes of that time i mean yeah. everybody would have known these names yeah. um so whether or not that sheds light that's at least a reminder that there is because i'm always kind of underlining uh with you all you all's help the old the importance of the old Her the old testament as the main context but that's not to say that there's not the context of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, I mean, this gets back to whether or not there's kind of pure Judaism or, or you know, watered down uh, later, like Hellenistic Christianity that loses its pure uh, Jewishness. Um, and this stuff, even outside of academic circles, is still with us today. I think that's part of the allure of things like messianic judaism that somehow christianity corrupted itself and messianic judaism is getting back to its jewishness um my basic response is well most of judaism by this time as we've already seen in uh the book of acts uh had gone through different stages of hellenism the yeah. wisdom literature and others reflect uh, not only Hellenism, but earlier contact with uh, Egyptian or Babylonian wisdom literature. Um, if you studied Genesis and some of the other books, you realize there's borrowing and critiquing of different genres from other civilizations that they were around, um, but maintaining uh, monotheism and other uh, views of God that were not uh, Babylonian or Egyptian, etc. A one creator God who out of peace creates things is quite different from some of the other creation accounts, for example. So um, what about Tabitha? Going back to chapter nine in Acts. I think we have here again a this is kind of the female counterpart to Barnabas in some ways, where she's full of the, the noting that she's full of good works and acts of charity. Uh, and I'm going to underline as we go into the next chapter, this uh, acts of charity as again, showing up pretty strongly in Cornelius for me in this reading, um, this time going through acts. Is there anything that this reminds you of this encounter with Peter with Tabitha? The healing of the little girl. I think after, like, she died on the way, uh, I'm like, words, uh, and the woman with the issue of blood, like, touched his garments and delayed Jesus, and little girl dies, and little girl arises. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of echoes the Tabitha rise. Mm -hmm. 
And also, I'm thinking of Elisha and the, the Shunammite widow's son. That, yeah. What about that? Well, the you know, putting everyone out and then praying. Um, going up into an upper room. I, I think there's yeah. also going up into an upper room. Yep. Yep. Although it's much shorter than what Elisha, you know, his, his long prayer and, and breathing into the boy's mouth and, and so on. And Peter just turning to the body and said, Tabitha, rise. Yeah. I, it's fascinating. Um, going back to the reason why the deacons were um, set aside or was this conflict about the dispersal of help for the widows. And we here have again another person who is helping widows. Um, and they're sh- this is verse 39. Uh, they're showing the tunics and garments. Uh, it's just a real testament to the work that Tabitha, a.k.a. Dorcas, I can't decide. I'm so used to Tabitha instead of Dorcas, um, but I like both of the names. Uh, of her witness and her charity and what she was doing to help uh, the local church and the widows that were around. Um, we have another healing here. And I think it's also interesting in verse 41 that Peter specifically calls the saints and widows uh, together. And later in the church, you see this in the pastoral epistles. I'm thinking of like the Timothy, first uh, and second Timothy, where there is long discussions about widows and um which I think it helps uh, illuminate the, if I'm remembering correctly, in the beginning of First Timothy, where it basically tells women to be silent, uh, one of those infamous uh, passages. Um, that it, the later, I see Jim going, huh? Uh, I thought that was, wasn't that in First Corinthians? It's also in First Timothy. Okay, also in First, okay. First Timothy two uh, verse eleven. Let a woman okay. learn in silence with all submissiveness. Okay. There's also a concern. I grew up um, Church of Christ, man. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it. you know, it. I know these passages. <laughs> as I've heard the First Corinthians one cited so many times that the other one uh, doesn't get mentioned as much. And it's, usually, it's the First Corinthians of, is the one that's proof texted. Right. Uh, this is also one of the proof texts, and this is, I think, even stronger in some ways because says women this is 2 9 of timothy women should adorn themselves modestly sensibly in seemly apparel not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire but by good deeds right. as befits women who profess religion uh and also after it says learn in silence i prevent no woman to teach or have authority over men she is to keep silent and then it makes an argument from adam and eve um with a very um what does it mean that if women shall be saved through bearing children, which is one of those just like endless debates. What exactly does that mean? Um, But I think, uh, and I have heard a pretty decent, uh, putting this in context, um, that you have uh, issues going through, that it shows up specifically in this text uh, about false teachers and specifically 
widows and women who were following these false teachers uh, and then creating kind of discord in the congregation and that what Paul is telling Timothy there has a context uh, about, because if you're widowed, you're not really attached to a household in that time in the way that you would have been if you were married. Uh, so there is this kind of, there's social, social things going on that I think Paul is trying to get things under control that I think uh, fit a very specific context. Um, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this subject because this is not really what I wanted to talk about tonight. Uh, <laughs> but I, there is, the reason I brought it up is because this uh, later it specifically says things like, and later in First Timothy, uh, this is 5.15. No, I'll start in 14. Uh, this is talking about widows not learning not to be idlers, gadding about from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. This is where I'm tying it back to the earlier about false teaching. So I would have young, younger widows marry, bear children, rule their households, and give the enemy no occasion to revile us. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her assist them. So I think of Tabitha here as being one of those women who has relatives or widows and they're helping. And later in the church, this um, I, I've read pretty seems to be decent uh, suggestions for some of the beginnings of proto-monasticism are rooted actually mm -hmm. in some of these widows uh, that you read something like uh, the Testament of our Lord, which is um, at least the scholarship I've read on it uh, has it placed in a little bit around like Basil and Gregory and Cappadocia. And it has a very specific kind of office for widows uh, and they are given a specific kind of title and they're given specific jobs in the church and a specific special place in the church. So it's a continuation of this uh, need at the time and that society um, to dedicate folks who, well, I mean, all of us go through different times where we need something to do <laughs> and it allow, it gives uh, meaning and purpose um, like what Tabitha was doing, doing good works and acts of charity, uh, that you kind of have this proto-monastic uh, life for these uh, women who are no longer going to be married or of marrying age, and uh, the church continues. I'm just saying this as you can see the trajectory of this in the church uh, through the early um, writings of the church. Is there anything that anybody would like to comment about Tabitha? Or Dorcas? Well, it does always strike me how very few people are raised from the dead in scriptures, and this is maybe typical. It's not apostles and prophets, and it's not kings. It's generally people who seem, in sort of the worldly sense of the term, unremarkable. And this is just a woman who evidently quietly went about doing good, and the people there thought it was proper to call the apostle to come and see if he could raise her from the dead. Mm -hmm. And the Lord was pleased to do so. It really says something about sort of what's important in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. I think we might have found some of our answer to the episode of Aeneas. Without Aeneas, you don't get Tabitha being raised from the dead, right? The residents of Lydda, now Lydda. 
they hear they've heard and seen what Peter can do, so they call they say, Hey Peter, come on over. Mm. Anything else about Tabitha or any questions about my brief detour through so <laughs> early I've, Christian I've... development of <laughs> widows into proto monasticism? Well, that's actually that's a good point, Reed. And so now what I'm wondering is just like last week or the week before when we were looking at um, St. Paul's conversion and the gap in time that you read in Acts, and it sounds like his his trip to Jerusalem was very soon after his conversion, but elsewhere it sounds like it was a few years. And so that does raise a good question. Is there any kind of gap between verse 35 and 36? Because 35, it sounds like, that's when the gospel first comes to Lydda and Sharon and that people are converted. And then 36, you have Tabitha's already a disciple. And it sounds like there's, there is a Christian community there in the area. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, is this another one of those where uh, St. Luke, for whatever reason, isn't in some places he can tie things down very neatly as in terms of time and when things happen, like when Caesar Augustus had his census, <laughs> but in yeah, and other times we don't really have a sense of when did this happen relative to this other thing. Well, it seems, you know, this might all be, uh, the key might be verse 43 that Peter stays with Simon, the Tanner, that's mm -hmm. the hook. That's the hook for Cornelius to find out where Peter is. So there might be, this is like mm. preamble bringing us up to this great, um, yeah, the Gentile transition for the, yeah, the transition and opening yeah. up that we've already seen, like Saul is gonna, mm -hmm. gonna take us there, but then we got to bring Peter on board to show how he's going to have his own revelation, uh, and moving forward. So with that, let's go ahead and actually go to chapter 10, unless somebody would like to say anything. Who would like to read? I can. Go for it, John. Um, so let's see. Let me... Let's stop at 16. Stop at 16. Okay. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms liberally to the people, and prayed constantly to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those that waited on him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and coming near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became hungry and desired something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heaven opened, and something descending like a great sheet let down by four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. 
And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So much is going on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What does... So Cornelius, he's a centurion. He is a pious man, so he is a God-fearing Gentile. And it very clearly underlines throughout the text that he was an alms giver. And this is one of those things that as I've been rereading, you know, Acts this time, and I mentioned, uh, we just did this like two chapters ago, I think, uh, money, money, money. <laughs> there <laughs> is this, this thread of money and Acts keeps coming up. Um, and I wanted to, specifically because God, when he, this vision to Cornelius, um, he says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And there's something about um, almsgiving that I kind of want to underline here. Uh, we've talked about the kind of money in general and how the use of money and its importance within the kingdom. Uh, but I want to underline because I think, partly I think this is due um, and I can send this out to anyone who's interested in this, but uh, as soon as I came across this chapter this uh, afternoon, I messaged uh, a friend of mine, Deacon Philip, uh, and who gave a class on almsgiving just um, at St. John's in Greenville. And so he had all sorts of quotes and uh, passages. So I wouldn't have to do like hours of work so I could just lean on him. And it is, we'd, because we talked about the subject actually at seminary because he had re, uh, read an interesting book that at some point I would like to read. Uh, it's called Charity by Gary Anderson. I believe he's a scripture professor at Notre Dame. Uh, and basically it is underlining how uh, specifically the giving of alms uh, in the Bible is considered a way of doing justice for people. And how it's tied up with the forgiveness of sins very explicitly in scripture in ways that I think Protestants, or if you're in the Protestant world, those things get missed. Because what do Protestants usually focus on is what the forgiveness of sins is tied to outside of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Faith, Faith, grace, right? Um, but scripture is pretty adamant about, and so I'm just going to start reading some texts. Um, some of these, uh, like, for example, I'm going to quote, read a quote from Tobit. So Protestants will, you know, quibble about that, but whatever. Um, Proverbs 10 verse two, ill gotten treasures profit nothing, but justice saves from death. This is Tobit 410 for almsgiving delivers from death and keeps one from entering into darkness. Tobit 12.9, for almsgiving saves from death and purges all sin. Those who give alms will enjoy a full life. Again, Tobit 14.11, so my children see what almsgiving does. Apparently Tobit really likes almsgiving. And also what wickedness does, it kills. 
but now my spirit is about to leave me. They laid him on his bed and he died and he's buried with honor. Daniel 4, 24. Therefore, O king, may my advice be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins by good deeds and your misdeeds by kindness to the poor. Then your contentment will be long lasting. And then uh, he has here a quote uh, from Matthew about giving alms and not blowing a trumpet. Uh, and then there's different um, ways in which the word uh, is tied to compassion, uh, giving, and um, justice, where almsgiving is actually the combining of compassion and justice in the word uh, in the Septuagint. Um, so what is interesting, now I'm actually going to read some from Chrysostom. There you go, read. Uh, this is from Chrysostom's homily on First Timothy. Tell me how it is that you are rich. For whom did you receive your wealth? And he, whom did he receive it from? From his grandfather, you say, from his father. By climbing this genealogical tree, are you able to show the justice of this possession? Of course you cannot. Rather, its beginning and root have necessarily come out of injustice. The fathers, this isn't just Chrysostom. This goes through Basil, uh, Jerome, Ambrose, uh, etc., that they have this idea that there is typically, if you have more than what you need is some, there's something unjust has happened. Um, there is, uh, let's see here. The specifically these are in the quotes. I only printed out some of the quotes because he has a whole nother document as, uh, also some essays written, uh, and other places where Chrysostom um, expands upon these ideas of, Specifically, giving alms uh, frees you from Hades, from hell. Uh, that it, there's a very he very specifically ties the act of alms giving to uh, being as good deeds and being remembered before God. Um, this is not something that we typically think of uh, as being remembered for God, or even kind of like exchanging, uh, even language of exchanging of our debt that if we, as we give alms, we're actually paying off our debt <laughs> um, for things that we've done wrong. Uh, so this theme is something that um, goes throughout, not just scripture, but the fathers pick it up uh, pretty strongly. Uh, and I can share some of this. I have just a few things that I was reading there. Um, but I think it's important here again, that Cornelius is somebody that it underlines uh, in his righteousness is somebody who gives liberally of alms, which then reminds us of Barnabas, which reminds us of the wisdom of the Ethiopian eunuch, which reminds us of the early church uh, that we find in Acts 2 and how they gave of their means uh, in order to help each other. Um, but I just wanted to do a little sidebar there, uh, and I can provide more information on it, but it's just how ways in which Christianity over time uh, oversimplifies things and loses some of the depth of what the, er the earlier tradition and the practices and the reasoning that was behind it because of, well, in some places just abuses of those things. Um, but it's still in the tradition and it's something uh, to be mindful for and to find ways for ourselves to, to give alms and uh, doing so seek justice through that. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, Sorry I think you turned, off, you turned off your uh, video instead of <laughs> muting. <Oops. laughs> 
Yeah, the sorry, no, no, it was uh, my phone is over here to the side, and my mother just tried to FaceTime me. <laughs> I, I declined. I will let her know I'm on Bible study. <laughs> um, One does not simply decline one's mother without a reason. Correct. The uh, so we here have here that God has remembered this again. Underlining here, of course, this transition um, that the kingdom is now going to be open to the Gentiles. That we have a righteous Gentile that God has heard his prayers and received his alms have, have ascended to God. And now he's going to um, initiate Cornelius's initiation into the church. Um, do you think there's anything important about Cornelius being a centurion? He's a Gentile and he's a soldier. So you know what? There's yes. He's kind so of the, certainly not like a the, the ultimate uh, Gentile. Not only is he a Gentile, but he's a Roman soldier Gentile. He's part of the enemy. I'd wondered when I first came across the centurion, how the how centurions are depicted in the Gospel of Luke. And it is a centurion who, um, after Christ dies, this is in 23, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what was, had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. Uh, I believe, actually, now this is, is the tradition actually make the, put Cornelius back at that position, that he is a centurion in Luke's, Luke who says that? I thought that was... Longinus, or long, long yes, that's it. Yeah, that's Longinus. It. Yeah, it's Longinus. Which whose name just means spear, right? <laughs> um, but we have with Cornel. I think there's something about even a centurion, right? The kind of archetype of uh, Roman power is someone who is now going to. Um, like a Marine of the ancient world is now going to join uh, this ragtag group of Christians. It seems as though centurions generally um, are portrayed rather positively in the New Testament, because wasn't it also a centurion who says, oh my my, my servant is sick, and the Lord says, well, I'll go, but then he sends other friends to say, oh, no, don't trouble yourself. I'm a man under authority. You mm -hmm. know, my soul is greater faith I've not seen in Israel. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I, I, yes, I think the, the, the Bible and the, these at least three spots that we've noted, centurions, has generally a positive, uh, but I think kind of iconic house i'll use the word iconographically the centurion stands in this particular spot of the marines of the roman empire that i think is not your typical you know it's not a hellenistic jew it's not um it's not a tabitha he's kind of almost like um um the ethiopian eunuch is this kind of like uh image from a a, a 
a different place than what, you know, not Jerusalem, somewhere from somewhere else and something different. And yet somebody who still has ties to the Jewish faith because he believes in the God of the Jews uh, and is a righteous uh, Gentile. What do we make of Peter's uh, trance? I find it fascinating that they translate that to trance. I don't know if there's another spot in the Bible where there's a vision and they say that they fall into a trance. Does I that... can't think of any. What's what's the Greek say there? Good you question. have the Greek there. <laughs> I don't have the Greek on me. Let's look here. Can you see me Googling? <laughs> we can see you Googling. <laughs> Syriac? Why is there Syriac? Mm -hmm. I'll try Bible Hub. Is that theory? So where is this? I think it's just theoria, right? He beholds the heaven opening. Theoria. We're in verse 11 here. I think the word trance is one verse earlier. There it is, ecstasies. So an ecstatic state. Yeah. Basically out of him out of himself. Out, out of himself, yeah, beside himself. That's fascinating. Uh, you know, the only other theory, place yeah. I could think of then that might Well, there actually there are several other places. One is St. Paul talking about being caught up to the third heavens. I'm willing to bet that it's a similar word that's used there, if not the same. And then I the mean, other throughout the church fathers too. I mean they pick that is one of that they love that word. Right. Well, I'm also thinking of uh, King Saul in the Old Testament when the prophets came. And yes. in that time, it was um, prophecy was not like in the New Testament where the spirits of the prophet were subject. I mean, that they had control of themselves, yeah. but it was an ecstatic experience that it was something that someone lost control. or yeah. They were unconscious. So that's fascinating. So he has an ecstatic uh, vision. Uh, trance just uh, trance just get for a modern English gives a very different feel yeah. <laughs> to it. But uh, it also makes it clear, though, it's not just that he had a creative idea, but he actually saw something. That it was a vision. That it was something, um, something made real to him, and and not just a. Uh, hallucination is not the right word. Certainly not that, but um, yeah. It's something that didn't come from inside of himself. It, it actually came, it's something right. that he had to like, that was revealed. Uh, yeah. And I think again, there's something important about uh, Peter is keeping his canonical hours. He's praying at the sixth hour. They note that. Um, 
to see the heaven opened and all the animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. So I, instead of just assuming that everyone, basically there are animals in the Old Testament that are unclean that Jews are not about to eat. So Peter's vision here is him uh, being told to rise and eat things that he has never eaten before. So, and again, I reminded this three times uh, of the calling of Samuel um, that occurs. Uh, but it also reminds me of the three times, the, um, the dialogue between Jesus and Peter. That's another like dialogue with Peter that happens, you know, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Mm. Do you love me? Do you love me? It's like Peter needs to be told a lot. <laughs> he, he's orthodox, right? He has to be told three times. <laughs> well, and that passage is really interesting in the Greek too, because, you know, sadly English has only one word for love, but it, mm -hmm. it uses the, uh, um, Oh my goodness. Uh, philos agapao and agape. phileo. Yeah. Yeah. So what is um, the significance of this? Is there, well, is there any other visions of the Old Testament that this would remi remind anyone of anything? Hmm. Well, are there visions? Go oh, ahead, Bri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isaiah. The, the so? temple, the glory, the, the glory of God descended on the temple in the year that King Uzziah died. Yeah. And Ezekiel, a lot of his prophecies, they're very vivid visions of things going on in the temple of, yeah. of spiritual realities, if not physical. Um, I guess you could say Daniel. Daniel. And animals, specifically in Daniel. Hmm. And Ezekiel has animals. Reed, what were you going to? Well, something that strikes me is I think of um, Pharaoh's vision, Pharaoh's dream, and mm. that he sort of dreams the same thing two different ways. And as I recall, when Joseph interprets that, he says, well, the repetition indicates that God has decided this thing firmly. Right. And, verily, uh, verily. Mm. <laughs> And so that this is repeated evidently verbatim three times. I, I wonder if what this is to convey is that, okay, Peter is about to be asked to believe something that's going to go mm. very much against his reflexes. You know, he's told to eat these things and his first, his first words are, no, of course not, Lord. I've never done anything like that. Yep. And uh, so I, I wonder if knowing that what the repetition twice in the Old Testament meant, having this thing re repeated three times is going to weigh very heavily to tell him, okay, there's a new thing happening here and you've got to, you've got to go with it. You got to get with the program, Peter. <laughs> this also reminds me of Peter with the, uh, the um, washing of the feet. He's like, no, 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 you're not going to wash my feet. And then he's like, oh, wait, yeah, everything. <laughs> <laughs> he, he really gets with the program. I have you know, somebody um, who's like, I think it's also fascinating with Peter. It's not, this is revealed to him. It's not Paul, you know, Paul withstands him to his face, but it takes right. Peter to have to get explicit <laughs> permission from a vision from God 
it can't be Paul. But like, Paul not- doesn't argue with him to get him to this place. It, like he has that uh, interaction with him. I, I am assuming trying to keep this chronology somewhat sensible <laughs> that that would have occurred before this. Yeah, uh, that's, I was, I was going to say, um, you know, Peter had to learn this lesson a couple of times. And, and it, it's, it's, I it gives, a, I guess, some hope to some of us uh, but, well, who maybe however, know. When this happens, this is before there are many Gentiles in the church but when St. Paul writes about having to withstand him to his face, that assumes that the church has now already got a significant Gentile population. Right. So maybe Peter still hasn't gotten with the program all the way. Yeah. Well, old old habits die, die hard. hard. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, this is going to be the first huge debate within the church, right? Right. You know, mm. can the Gentiles come in? Well, okay, we don't seem to be able to deny, deny that, but okay, on what terms do they come in? And so Peter has to be convinced. And then as soon as he gets back, the other believers, the Jewish believers are going to say, hey, what were you doing with the Gentiles? We don't do that. And so Mm. he's going to explain it to them. And then, you know, Paul is going to say he's sent to the Gentiles, and that's going to cause an uproar. And even once the, the church and the leadership have really settled on this, there's still going to be this large circumcision group that causes trouble for a very long time. Yep. So... You know, I wonder if this is sort of priming the pump to say, okay, look, Peter, let's make this really clear in a way that you can tell other people, look, God said this three times. There's no denying it. Right. Yeah. It, wa- it wasn't just a, um, oh, I had a little bit of a vision. This is like, no, this is a vision that's like, <laughs> this is really a vision. This is really a vision. This is really what I'm saying. And I, I think it goes on. The, um, let's continue reading because I think, um, well, Time-wise, we're not going to get through this chapter. That's okay. Uh, (laughs) But let's continue reading because I think uh, more of the story will unveil itself here. Uh, Reed, will you read 17 to 29? Sure. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision which he had seen might mean, behold, the men that were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood before the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for, which is the re- or what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he called them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went off with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his kinsmen and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with, the, with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So, that, uh, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. 
Any comments on this section? Well, I think it's really interesting that Peter sees this thing three times and then he says, hmm, I don't know what that meant. <laughs> and, oh, and it seemed like, but he seemed to understand at least in 28 and 20, not uh, verse 28, right? Um, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that perplexion is something uh, like that old habits die hard. Like, yeah, maybe I get it, but it's like Jonah, like, I don't really want to do it. <laughs> I think I might do something. I don't know. I'm struggling to, you know, my heart is not in it yet, but I'm going to do what I'm told. I don't know. Please, Mr. Custer, I don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be perplexing if you, your entire life and the way that you practiced religion has you know your obedience to god is now all of a sudden you're like what this mm -hmm. is a this is a building block of why we're supposed to stand out among the nations and now the partition wall is being torn down i i'm i'm this is a struggle we still have the refrain today in the church you hear it often we've never done it that way <laughs> I don't, I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, and there's times where that is a good response. And there's other times where the spirit is uh, within the parameters of tradition and scripture, which I know Jim, that you would say, yes, uh, that that can also be a, an argument that gets us far afield from apostolic teaching. Uh, what this does underline though, is something that I wanted uh, about the spirit is you notice who's the active um, person in this text, like it was with Philip? It's uh, the Spirit said to him in verse 19. So it's not, well, it's God, but flow with me for a second here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the Lord or it's not, you know, God. It's specifically saying the Spirit is the one who is active the one who is uh, orchestrating this in the same way that uh, Philip, after he baptized Ethiopian eunuch, that the spirit took him up. Um, I think there, this is again, underlining that the book of Acts is kind of the book of the spirit. It is still the extension of the ministry of Jesus, because I would say from a dogmatic standpoint, the Holy spirit is always residing uh, on the sun. Um, mm -hmm. shining forth from the sun is the way that uh, later Byzantine theology would talk about the uh, Trinity. The, the spirit is always doing the work of the sun. The spirit is not uh, detached from the work, salvific work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so here the spirit is active in bringing uh, three men, um, Cornelius, uh, and these soldiers of Cornelius, at least one of them is devout. If I remember how the text was talking about one of the, the soldiers. Wasn't it one soldier and two servants? Let's see here. The soldier was devout. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier. Yep. So let's go ahead and at least finish 30 through, I'll just read 30 through 33 here. And Cornelius said, this is Peter saying, so, you know, why am I here? 
God told me to come here, so I'm here, so what's going on? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was keeping the ninth hour of prayer, again, canonical hour of prayer that he's keeping, the ninth hour of prayer in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright apparel, saying, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, who is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the seaside. So I sent to you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here present in the sight of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And Peter, I'm going to keep on reading a little. Uh, let's just finish it. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The word which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses to all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God, God raised him on the third day and made him manifest. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. In the other accounts of the preaching, this is me just wondering out loud, uh, is it appended there to this kind of basic narration of uh, who Jesus is, that he is the one ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead? Is that found in earlier? Is, does Stephen talk like that? I don't think Stephen talks like that. Does Peter preach like that in Acts 2? I don't think he preaches like that in Acts 2 or later in Acts 4. I, I find it interesting that he adds that there i'm just looking at i don't see it mm -hmm. I, I think that just the, the reason why it underlines the i'll say eschatological nature of the kingship of jesus uh that this is also this is for all eternity this is uh, underlining that there will be a judgment uh, of the living and the dead uh, that will be accomplished by the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, again, we have Peter giving a short kind of creedal. This is what Christianity is. This is the message. Jesus is the one who was made, has made God manifest, uh, and we need to follow him because we're going to receive forgiveness of sins. Does anyone have any comments about his little sermon there? Yeah, it's not. It's not that it it doesn't agree with what he preached in chapter two, but it's right. It's basically the same sermon, but with some elaboration or, and <clears throat> pardon me, it may be that um, here he's preaching to Gentiles, and so not knowing. You know, granted, this is Cornelius who you know, he is uh, saying prayers, and so it's it's not that he's unfamiliar with Judaism, but without knowing 
fully Cornelius's situation. Maybe this is what he needed to hear. Um, could also be that uh, as time has passed, and we don't know how much time has passed, that um, you, you start getting, as you mentioned, creedal formulations or um, the, the oral tradition is solidifying. And so this might be a more mature sermon. Yeah, I, I'm looking at just... This is all um, also what um, Paul, when he preaches in Athens, he very specifically underlines that there's a, he is even a little bit more explicit. He says, this is later in Acts, in Acts 17, that uh, starting in 1730, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. So you might be onto something there that the tacking on of that, uh, the judgment essence is actually part of this expansion into the broader, that there's a universal quality to this judgment. Um, that is something they need to say when they're talking to, to the Gentiles. Uh, to make it a little more explicit that might be uh, assumed in a Jewish context. Oh, finish the last few verses. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I do wonder at the end of Peter's sermon in chapter two, he quotes Psalm two. Yes, uh, yes, and, yes. You know, you go through that. It's like, you know, you, you will rule them with an iron scepter. I've established my king and Zion, my holy hill. Um, that's certainly very close to a picture of, of judgment since the kings were also judges. Yes, especially because he laughs them to scorn, right? Uh, all, the, all of the uh, nations come to him and he uh, has appointed his ruler there. Yes, that maybe making it more explicit that at that time they would have heard that and they would have thought of the whole psalm and the mm -hmm. ramifications of it. I'll just read the last four verses here. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. I guess it's clear if God's declared they're clean, <laughs> they're clean. We have the Pentecost of the Gentiles, right? Peter gets to yep. preach another sermon, and now we have the uh, another speaking in tongues, uh, and now there must be baptism. It's interesting now. It's instead of the appointed, you know, twelve or the disciples and the apostles. Now. Um, it's those outside, like there's a kind of, there's still this movement outside in it and God bringing in from the outside, these who were not a part of the original witnesses, but are now going to be added by fiat. <laughs> God saying, this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. And Peter can't really argue with that. 
any other comments about Cornelius in this encounter? Because these kind of themes are going to continue with us as we continue through Acts. Because as Reed mentioned earlier, this will be there'll be a lot of a lot of talking about these issues. I mean, of course, it, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit did come on them before they were baptized, and you know, Peter is using this as an argument that, well, okay, so certainly no one can forbid that they should be baptized. It's it's fascinating that he's still like they still need to be baptized, mm-hmm. even though the Holy Spirit fell on them. We still need to baptize them. Because mm-hmm. I know some logic, it's kind of like, well, they got the Holy Spirit. What do they need to ba- What do they need to be baptized? Do they, are, do they have everything? And Peter's mind is no. They need to be baptized now. Yeah, and I find myself wondering whether, back in verse forty-three, when he says to him, "All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him." receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And, of course, that's very much how uh, Peter ends in Acts 2, and people say, what do we do? And he says, well, repent and be baptized. Um, But I wonder if being baptized, in his mind, is part of believing. That belief is actualized, realized in the act of baptism. I think it's uh, somewhat, I think this is faithful uh, adherence to the commands of God. For example, like circumcision, I think would be an act of faith. That would have been what a a pious, faithful Jew, you circumcise your sons. And that is an act of faith. It's not um, (laughs) works righteousness. (laughs) It's what you do. (laughs) Like giving alms is something that affects salvation for you because it is the fruit of your relationship with God. Uh, It's not this extrinsic thing. That's not worth anything. Um, It is something that God uh, hears. I'll use that metaphor, the way the angel talks about it. God has remembered um, the alms of Cornelius. So there's something effective in his sacrifice um that's not this that kind of game down to well it's all just you know the most simple kind of mental ascent but that's not at all what scripture means by following faithfully it means being initiated and doing the things that you're supposed to do (laughs) and it's just it's kind of sad that we have to kind of repeat those kind of things but uh that's the context that we are in now. Well, it strikes me again, Father Daniel, you and I have talked a little bit before about how it appears that the only way, you know, being these physical spiritual beings that we are, the only way we ever participate in spiritual realities is physically. There is no other way for us. Right. that, That we have to do things physically because that's the way we're made. And so and that that is the beauty of being human is that we straddle the celestial and the mortal. I mean we we are right in between. We're not angels, uh but we also mediate uh this world in a way that animals do not. That's mm-hmm. what the place that God has put appointed for us. I mean Gregory the theologian waxes quite eloquent on this. 
Um, I'm sure Chris system somewhere does that as well. Um, I'm more, I'm a little bit more familiar with, there's a lot of Chris system to read. Uh, it's a little bit mm -hmm. easier to read the condensed intense form of Gregor, the theologian or Gregor of Nyssa. Um, but they're very much, uh, that, that's how, why, you know, we receive visions, uh, why it's angelic visitations. Uh, we exist, uh, enmeshed in a spiritual world that we don't always see, but is right there. Um, that's why sometimes we need to be knocked upside the head about it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else? Cause I definitely went over this time to try and get through this chapter. Well, thank you all. I'm going to go ahead and stop the uh, recording. And next time we will go into uh, chapter 11.